0: Welcome to episode 1584 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by ESPN's Sam Miller. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. Got some emails lined up and some stat blasts lined up for today, but a couple quick things I wanted to bring up. First, I wanted to talk about Albert Pujols for a second, because he had a historic Run batted in on Monday, he passed A-Rod on the all-time RBI list, and now he trails only Hank Aaron and Babe Ruth. And I'm sort of fascinated by Pujols' continued RBI accumulation, even after the point when he really stopped kind of contributing to the Angels' victories. So since the start of 2017, he has not been a good hitter or a good player, at least by most estimations. So over that time, he's hit 242. 291 405 not great for a first baseman dh that's an 85 wrc plus it's negative 2.8 fangraphs war and yet over that period he has still driven in 105 runs per 162 games so he's basically been a 100 rpi guy while being a, a sub replacement level player and i guess that's why we don't talk about rbi all that much because uh, they're not all that meaningful when it comes to player performance but it's still sort of interesting to see why guys are getting them sometimes and with pujols i guess it's a combination of factors that allow him to keep driving in runs despite not really creating that many runs a he still has some power so you know he's like a 20 homer guy and Everyone is a 20-homer guy at this point with the ball the way it is, but still he's retained some home run ability. He doesn't strike out a lot. He's striking out a little bit more this year, but still well below the league average, and really he has retained the ability to put the ball in play, which is kind of a double-edged sword, or really maybe it's just one edge because a lot of those balls in play are outs, so he just makes a lot of outs, but because he puts the ball in play and doesn't walk much anymore, that helps him drive in runs, I think. Of course he's had Trout hitting ahead of him Which helps a lot And other good hitters too But also he's been kind of clutch Which uh, I think we've touched on before But he's I think 26th or so In Fangraph's clutch metric since 2017 He has a 111 WRC plus With runners in scoring position Versus his 85 overall over that period And 74 with the bases empty So he really has turned it up a notch With runners on Don't know if he can keep doing that, but I would imagine that that probably has played a part in him continuing to get as much playing time as he has, right? Because if he had the same overall stats that he has right now, but he hadn't timed his hits as well, it probably would have been even harder to keep him in the lineup all this time, I would think.
1: Well, I mean, I I don't know that I would confidently say that any of the people making the decision about how often he plays... Necessarily believe that he's a clutch run producer mm-hmm. so much as him being a clutch run producer has prevented them from taking the, you know, somewhat frictiony step of benching him it's like the he, he he it's like it's like i don't know sometimes you like i don't know you just you, how do i put this like with sometimes you you have a you know a child sometimes you've you, you've uh, procreated and the child has grown up and is has some you know has a lot of sovereignty as well and the child is disrespecting you clearly in manner and uh, and in their own head mm-hmm. and you would like to address that disrespect but you need them to do something first you need them to uh, to give you an excuse for the protocols of discipline to come into play and so long as they don't do that you're kind of you're unable to, to take action they have they have managed to prevent you from having uh, the excuse that you need to initiate discipline and mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's what i'm saying is happening with albert Pujols.
0: I got a little nervous when you said sometimes you've procreated. I couldn't recall a specific instance of that happening in my case, but uh, I guess you never know. It could happen at some point. I remember a, a specific comment in 2017, which was like the, the first year I think that Pujols was just a, a net negative, really. he He hadn't been great for a year or two before that, but that's when he really fell below average just even as a hitter. And I think I found the quote about halfway through that season. I think Pujols had the worst war in baseball. And so people were writing about the fact that Pujols was like literally the worst player in baseball to that point in the season. And the Angels uh, disputed that, as you would imagine they would. But Bill Shaken wrote about it for the LA Times and he said, We don't attach that statement to Albert Pujols, that he's the worst player, I guess. That is definitely not something we believe. And Mike Sosha, who was the manager at the time, said Pujols is, what, fourth or fifth in our league in RBIs? Those guys don't fall off of trees. This guy has done a good job for us. And I don't know how much he believed that and how much he was just saying it because that's your job as a manager to stick up for your players. But probably there's like a part of him that believed it. And maybe if Sosha was just a more old school manager who'd be more willing to believe that. But, you know, when Billy Epler said our analysis, our viewpoint is that in Albert's case, we're seeing a guy that still has a lot of presence in the middle of the order. He impacts the baseball and he has big at bats. You know, those are sort of generic things to say about a player. But. Maybe more believable when the guy Is actually getting some clutch hits And driving in runs and fans Are probably less sick of Seeing the guy when they're seeing Him drive in runs it's easier To remember those good moments than the Outs he's making at less uh, Leveraged times so I think it has an effect on the perception Of the player even if Billy Epler was not going to say yeah I'm, I'm changing my projection for Albert Pujols because I think he is Permanently clutch or is better than the numbers say Mm -hmm. did you see tristan mckenzie start on saturday for cleveland he's a rookie pitcher he came up and had a, a really great debut he struck out 10 in six innings walked one guy gave up two hits And he was starting in place of Mike Clevenger, but he was so great that even though Clevenger is back, Cleveland said, "Okay, keep pitching. And McKenzie is scheduled to start again on Friday against St. Louis. And I wasn't that familiar with Tristan McKenzie, but I was watching his start and he has sort of a a striking appearance because he has really good stuff and he is really tall. But he is also extremely slender He is uh, just very lanky Just a very lanky guy He's 6'5 He is uh, listed at 165 And it's sort of surprising to see the speed come out of that frame, because it just doesn't look like the most powerful frame, and suddenly he's whipping the ball in at like 97. That's what he got up to. He was averaging close to 95, and he also gets great rise on his fastball. Our pal Lucas Apostolaris wrote about McKenzie this week at Baseball Prospectus and found that he has more rise on his fastball than anyone this year except James Karinchak and Tyler Thornburg, so that tends to mean more whiffs, as it did in his his debut he's a you know first round pick in 2015 he's a top 50 prospect he's he didn't just come out of nowhere but he's had a lot of injuries and setbacks and if you read scouts comments about them a lot of them will say you know they don't know if he'll be durable or can he hold up to a workload because of his frame and all of that in fact he hadn't thrown a professional pitch prior to his first official start of this season since august 2018 because of his injuries but I think it's fun to watch him because he's slinging the ball really hard and it doesn't look like he should be able to produce that kind of power. And he almost like slings himself around. There's like, after he releases the ball, he just kind of is like knocked to the side a little bit by the, the force of his delivery. And so I was curious to see if that observation that he is an extremely lanky guy really holds up historically and so I wait
1: you had you're wondering whether the 6'5 165 <laughs> player is perhaps an anomaly he's 6'5 yeah and he weighs 165 pounds yeah that seems uh, he's odd, probably he's probably listed at the lowest <laughs> weight among all pitchers right now
0: I didn't check that, and but, he's six five. Uh, yeah, probably just need the eye test on yeah. that one, I guess. <laughs> but I still—it's really, to see. I,
1: I, yeah. I don't know if you saw that he—he um, he tweeted a picture of himself. I, I think the night before uh, his start, and he was wearing you know normal normal clothes, not not the baseball uniform. And it really comes out then, like he was wearing like uh, mm-hmm. you know like jeans and sneakers. And it's interesting because he looks skinnier for a for a citizen than he does for a baseball player when Mm. you know of course baseball players are all you know they generally are muscular and they work out and all that Mm -hmm. but i guess they also have a sort of a more toned physique and so yeah the skinning is actually to me oddly enough played up more on you know Mm -hmm. on a sidewalk yeah so i i asked Kenny
0: Jacklin at Baseball Reference for a list of the highest and lowest body mass indexes, like the top 100 and bottom 100 among all major league players ever, just to see where he stacked up. And yes, unsurprisingly, he is quite close to the, the bottom of the list when it comes to BMI, which, you know, is not a, a perfect measure of fitness or strength or anything. It's it's really more of a measure of thickness. <laughs> you know, are you thick or are you thin? And he is quite thin. The bottom of the list, it's mostly guys from a very long time ago, you know, 19th century players, early 20th century players, when players were not the, the physical specimens for the most part that they are now. So the, the lowest body mass index on record is candy Cummings, generally credited as the uh, inventor of the curveball. So he was uh, 5'9 and listed at 120 pounds, which uh, would be very unusual now, but was not so unusual in 1872. Anyway, there is only one player who has a a lower BMI than Tristan McKenzie's 19.6, who debuted after World War II, and that is Rusty Meacham. Rusty Meacham the pitcher who had about a 10-year career with the Royals and other teams he had a slightly lower BMI 19.4 he was 6'3 155 so same sort of neighborhood and it's kind of tough to compare with the listed weights because baseball reference often will use like the latest listed weight for a player unless it's a long ago player and so if a guy got bigger and heavier as his career went on, then maybe he might be listed with a higher BMI, even though when he came up, he had a lower one. So by the end of his career, Tristan McKenzie may very well have packed on some pounds, and then it won't look so extreme. According to Eric Longenhagen, he has added only about five pounds in the five years since he was drafted, so... I don't know, maybe he just has the kind of metabolism where it's tough for him to keep on weight, and I don't know if it's a problem or not. It's the sort of thing that scouts will say, I don't know if he can hold up, and and he has broken down a bit, but that could be unrelated. It's just that when scouts see something that looks like an outlier, looks that far out of the norm, they get a little nervous because uh, you don't have the, the mental database of players who were successful and looked like that. And you do hear some pitchers say that having a little extra mass and weight helps them not wear down over the course of a season or maybe helps with the the velocity and the momentum and imparting extra speed to a pitch with him. I guess it's just a great gift for arm speed and long levers, as they say. So we'll see. I hope that he has a a long and successful career regardless of what he weighs. But I just wanted to to check what my eyes said against the, the database and the database agrees.
1: He is listed as the third lightest pitcher who has appeared in the majors this year. The, mm-hmm. uh, the lightest is Phillips Valdez on the Red Sox, who is 6'2", so three inches shorter and listed at 160, and Sionel Perez, who is listed at 162 pounds, and he is six inches shorter <laughs> <Yeah>. than McKenzie. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, Cleveland just keeps churning out really promising pictures. They just come in all different shapes and sizes. You have anything before we get to emails? Nope. All right, then. Let's start with one that we meant to get to last week and just never did. It's from Justin, who says... If putting a runner on second is a good rule for extra innings, then is it a good rule for all of the innings? This is obviously mostly facetious, but I've been wondering if the extra innings are, at least in part, more interesting because teams are more aggressive. If you know the bad guys are starting with a runner on second, it becomes more imperative to get your own guy home. Extend that to every inning and you have built-in tension all the time. Scoring would go up without increasing game time. Every routine play suddenly becomes interesting. We would lose a lot of things, shutouts for sure, and a pitcher could throw a no-hitter and take the loss. People who like baseball would hate it, but it would be fun.
1: So I want to give you four recent examples of extra innings situations that I have uh, responded to. Okay, I've got four of these. These are just games that I happen to see the extra innings of. So Orioles-Phillies about two weeks ago. The Orioles won on an inside the park home run. And that's exciting, right? Like that Mm -hmm. you could if I went, this new extra innings rule is incredible. I saw an extra innings game one on an inside the park home run. A person might say, Oh, well, yeah, but that would be exciting even if there was nobody on base. An extra innings home run under the old rules would have been exciting. You don't get credit for that. But this was an extra innings home run in which it was a line drive to center field. And I believe Roman Quinn charged it and very aggressively tried to tried to catch it. And it got past him, rolled all the way to the wall and became an extra innings home run. So it wouldn't have been an extra innings home run under the old rules. The whole reason that Roman Quinn went super aggressively after it is because the go ahead winning run was already on second base with with, you know, nobody out. Uh, He was trying to to stop that run from scoring. So he he overplayed. The ball, the ball got past him. And now, instead of being uh, like, you know, hypothetically and under the same same rule, under the old rules, if the exact same thing had happened, we have a leadoff single, which is eh, kind of exciting. A leadoff single in the 10th inning. Instead, we got a leadoff extra innings inside the park home run. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Another one. I forget which game this was. The runner starts on second base. There's a single into the outfield. Throw comes in to try to throw the the runner out at home. It's unsuccessful. The run scores, and the batter takes second on the play. It might have gone down as a double, but my recollection is that he was basically got to second because the throw went home. And so now you have another runner on second, and the first pitch to the next batter is a pass ball in which the catcher simply just got crossed up. It was like a fastball on his left knee, and he was expecting a slider, and it just shot off, and it was a pass ball, and the runner went to third. And the reason that that cross-up happened is because there was a runner on second base and they had to go through the more elaborate signs. They got confused. If the runner had been on first base, if this had been a normal situation and the same thing had happened, then it's a leadoff single, kind of exciting. But there's just a runner on first. The catcher probably doesn't get crossed up with his pitcher and there's no pass ball at all. And so now we have a runner on third with nobody out. Whereas in the old days, it would have just been a single, and then he would have stayed on first, and it'd be like an 0-1 count or a 1-0 count to the next batter. So more exciting because the runner was on base. Another one, Orioles, Red Sox a couple days ago, sacrifice, I haven't read ahead on this one, so I'm hoping that this will end up having drama. I wrote this down a few days ago. Sacrifice, bunt attempt, they tried to throw the runner out at third. They failed. The runner was safe. So now you had first and third with nobody out. A wild pitch ties the game, puts a runner on second, and then a grounder to routine second base, but the second baseman had been holding the runner on, and so he could only stop the ball with a dive. This was just a routine play, but because he was holding the runner on, he had to dive to like basically knock it down. And so you have this whole sequence, all these base runners circling around, that. You know, probably never would have happened if you had not started with the runner on second because there wouldn't have been the sacrifice bunt attempt. There wouldn't have then been the failed attempt to cut the runner down. And then you wouldn't have had the the fielder holding the, the, the guy on second base, which caused another single to happen on a routine grounder because he was shaded over trying to hold the runner. All right. Fourth one, Brewers twins about a week ago, ground ball to first base, three, five. Attempt. The first baseman tries to cut the runner down, throws the ball in the dirt. Third baseman makes a great scoop, tags the runner out, and instead of being a routine three unassisted, it is a very exciting three five put out in which an incredible play is made by the third baseman. I have seen that exact play happen twice now, both times the aggressive throw to third to cut the runner down and the throw wild. The third baseman makes a great play, tags the runner out and basically resets the inning in a totally different way. And that has that three, five put out in extra innings has kind of become my new favorite play in baseball. And -hmm. again, it's a grounder to first. It's boring, except because you have the runner on second, it causes This extra aggression. So what I'm saying is that I think that part of what makes has made this exciting is that when you put runners on, I hadn't really realized this. And maybe it's only because it's extra innings. And maybe it's only because the, uh, that run represents the winning run, but everybody kind of starts acting a little wild. You know, the, the defense starts acting a little wild. The base runners are, you know, obviously they are base runners. And so they're doing things and there's just a lot more activity and things that are routine when there's nobody on base actually are like two, three, four step processes when there's already a runner on base. And so that actually causes a a great deal more intrigue. By the way, that Brewers twins game that I mentioned, the, the last one might be my favorite extra inning game so far this year. And the highlight of it was actually the next half inning when Jed Jerko was the put-on runner. He, he was on second base. And the first batter singles. So now you have runners at the corners. And then there's a pop-up into shallow center. The second baseman catches it, so he can't go. So now there's first and third with one out. A line drive into right field. The right fielder runs in. Max Kepler runs in, makes a diving catch to catch this ball for the second out. And Jerko failed to tag up. He had gone too far down the line, and so then he tries to run back to third and tag up, but by now Kepler has stood up, and he just has to to stay at third. So it's a diving catch into right field, and he couldn't tag up for who knows what reason. Anyway, that game was amazing, and it went 12 innings. All right, so I've given you four examples where the runner on base made things more interesting. Simply just by—like, he not, not even that the runner on second was necessarily the interesting part but made the uninteresting thing that was happening elsewhere on the field become much more interesting because people had to behave differently. Mm -hmm. I have had, when I wrote a piece, well, I will say one more thing and then I'll let you talk for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote a, when I wrote my piece saying that I was surprised by how much I enjoyed this new setup, I got a bunch of tweets that brought this up, this like, oh, well, if it's so good, then they do it in the first inning. And then the people Mm -hmm. would like, sort of like tweet that and I could just imagine them like being very satisfied that they had just (laughs) shut me down Mm -hmm. and and uh I mean I'm not I'm not saying that it necessarily would be better with a runner on first but to me that is not a dunking at all yeah probably it would be (laughs) I mean it probably yeah probably it would be more interesting now the reason that we well I'll let you talk
0: well, yeah. So so the question is, does the novelty of it wear off? And is it so exciting because it's in contrast to the normal, which is not starting innings with runners on base? And I think that's the position of, uh, say, Joe Sheehan, who wrote about this in his newsletter a couple of weeks ago. And He acknowledged that it's fun, but he doesn't want more of it. So what he wrote is, yes, it's entertaining. A runner in scoring position with nobody out is inherently more interesting than a no-on, no-out situation. Then again, that would also apply in the first inning. (laughs) Allowing any team down five or more runs to start their turn at bat with a runner on second would be entertaining. Playing with just six defenders behind the pitcher would be entertaining. Entertainment value cannot be the only measure of an idea. Even in a spectator sport, the integrity of the competition has to matter and placing a runner on second to start innings and extras is deleterious to the integrity of the competition. We know this in part because MLB has said so itself. MLB will not use the rule in the postseason because the league recognizes that it's a gimmick unfit for deciding a championship. And then he ends this newsletter by saying that baseball already had a good method of reaching a conclusion of determining a winner and a loser. This rule just gets the game over with and we can talk. And we have talked about maybe the benefit of getting the game over with instead of just extending indefinitely. But that's the idea that maybe it's too random. It's just too wild and it's fun in small bursts. It's it's good in moderation but you wouldn't want it all the time, A, either because it would reduce the competition itself to just kind of flukiness or because it would cease to be so exciting when it's all we know, when it's just the, the default. It's like... When I have had cotton candy, for instance, I haven't had cotton candy for years, but I think that's because I I always thought cotton candy looks so appetizing and the first few bites that you take of it are just so fluffy and wonderful and sweet and then very quickly it becomes disgusting <laughs> at least to me and it gets all hard and caked and it's just so sweet that it it starts to turn your stomach almost and i never ended up finishing the thing <laughs> so i liked the first few bites but i didn't actually want a whole sticks worth of cotton candy and so that would be one thing that you could say about the extra innings rule, that it's fun in extra innings, but you would not want it in every inning. Yeah. On the other hand, you could also say, well, it's more exciting, so why wouldn't you just want the the default, the baseline, to be more exciting? Because, after all, baseball is competing with all of these other forms of entertainment that are potentially exciting, so the more entertaining you can make it, the better.
1: Yeah, uh, for me, it's more microwave popcorn than... Than, uh-huh. uh, than cotton candy, so I have I think I have four uh, four responses to this <laughs> okay. to this uh, so called definitive disproval of the extra innings rule uh, that that if it's so good that why wouldn't they do it in the first inning so four four things one there is a there is a sort of a fallacy going on here right where for instance football in the NFL the most obvious. Thing that you would think to do on a touchback would be to put the ball at the one or like the one inch, right? You're in the end zone. Now, obviously you can't start the play in the end zone in your opposing team's end zone or I guess your own end zone. But why would you move the ball up to the 20 or the 25? That that doesn't necessarily make any sense except for, you know, it does. We we don't want to have every every series start on the one inch. That would be mm-hmm. a boring sport. Right. And it would be really hard to ever score. And you it basically would become a safety sport. And so they move it up. All right. So they move it up to the 20 or the 25. I don't remember which one it is now. And so then the, the equivalent argument here would be, oh, well, if it's so good on the 20, why don't they just start you at the 50 or mm-hmm. your opposing team's 30 or at your opposing team's one? Like, that, that's not how this works. We're trying to find the right thing somewhere in the balance and the one inch line was too restrictive and the other team's one inch line is not restrictive enough we're trying to have a sport with tension and entertainment both and so you know you try the 20 i don't even know if they started at the 20 maybe they started at the five originally and thought this isn't enough or maybe they started at the 20 and went this works fine and maybe in a hundred years they'll realize that they should be starting at the 30 you're it's a balance and you're you're tweaking as you as you go in the nba you have a 10 foot rim if i said it should be 11 feet and someone said that's too high and i said well then why don't you just make it six feet well that doesn't make sense either 10 is fine okay you just find the thing that increases action and also makes the sport kind of hard. And basketball has decided that they're going to have a 10 foot basket and that causes several hundred scoring attempts a game. Or I guess maybe, you know, about a hundred scoring acts per game. And, the NFL has decided they're going to put the ball at the 20, and that's going to have, you know, a, I don't know, a half dozen or 10 scoring events a game. And baseball has decided that they are going to have no runners on base, and that's going to cause like four-ish, five scoring events a game. And and soccer has decided that they're going to make the net the size of the net, and that's going to cause like two scoring events per game. And each sport is kind of different and finds its balance, but it's not like there is only objectively one possible pace that you could have. And you might decide that more scoring events is better and that more action between scoring events is better. So anyway, that is all to say that having a runner on second in the 10th inning does not mean that you have to immediately have a runner on second in the first inning. So that's the fallacy, right? I, mm-hmm. My, my, why not make the rim six feet high? Fallacy. Okay, the second one is somewhat related, which is that yes, it actually would probably maybe make baseball more interesting. Whether it would make baseball better is a little uncertain, and and because the uncertainty of the unknown always introduces a bit of friction, a bit of like a, you're a little wary of it. You're you. It might make things better, but it could ruin a perfectly good thing. And so for that reason, we tend to be you know as a people, we tend to be a little conservative. We we like the familiar. We sometimes put a little bit more pressure on a person to justify a change than we feel to justify leaving things the same. And you can see that all throughout society for good and, and for ill. But in this case, the reason that there's not a runner on second in the first inning or in any other inning traditionally is not necessarily that it was it was worse, but because we were, you know, were cautious about introducing change. Now, change happens anyway, and I go back to this all the time. Baseball, when they invented the rules, the rules being there's going to be a first base, second base, third base, there's gonna be three outs in an inning, the bases are gonna be 90 feet apart, all these things. They were in they were designed for an extremely different sport than is played today. The 90 feet that it took to run to first base was codified when it was extremely hard to field a ground ball and throw the runner out. And so if you look at how many batters reached base in the original formulation of of baseball, it was a much higher number. Like if you'd look at Babbitt plus errors in a game, there were way more base runners. And they apparently liked that that was how they designed the game. And then mm-hmm. things got more professionalized. People got better. There were gloves. And now Babbit and, you know, Babbitt plus Airs is a lot lower. And it's a different kind of a game. And in response to that, we've essentially done nothing. Now, we didn't do nothing because each step along the way, we were trying to, you know, I don't know. It wasn't even by design. It's just that we're resistant to change. And so the game has been changing, you know, all around us. But... Extreme steps like whether we're going to have a, a totally new way of of putting base runners on, we're wary of those. We're cautious of those. Mm-hmm. And so the the notion that that by doing that though you are maintaining like one one consistent product is. Is wrong. It's it is not it, the the game that's played today is very different than the game that was played a century ago or 150 years ago. Change is happening. It's fine. We're fine with change. We just like to go sort of slow. And so putting a runner on second base in the tenth inning, one inning, is perfectly in keeping with that. It's it's going slow. It's not saying we should do it every inning. It's just a little tweak. And in fact, it's a little tweak in an already anomalous year. We're kind of seeing how it goes. It's a mm-hmm. very cautious approach to it. And the result is that I like it and that's all like we they, they tried a cautious thing in a one-year experiment And I liked it and I, I don't really feel like I, I should be dunked on for liking it I don't feel like I need to get like a bunch of people on Twitter, you know trying to outlogic me I just like it. It's just fun <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: third thing third thing okay. the reason that you would have it in the tenth inning even though maybe we, maybe we do all agree that it, it shouldn't be in the first inning. The reason that it makes sense in the 10th inning is that it solves a problem that people have identified. It might not be a problem that you personally think is a problem, but it is solving a problem that people identified and wanted to solve. So it is a very specific solution to that problem. Rob Manford didn't say, what if we put a runner on second in the fourth? Like, he didn't just pick an inning out of the hat. He said, what can we do about these 18-inning games that everybody seems to hate? or that I guess a large a large part of our stakeholder population seems to hate. Well, what if we put a runner on second in the 10th inning? It wouldn't solve that problem by putting it in the first inning. So it can work in the 10th inning, even if I grant you that it wouldn't work in the first inning, because they're separate things. One is, one is for a reason, the other is for a hypothetical in an email episode. Mm-hmm. The fourth thing is what I alluded to earlier, which is that part of what makes it fun in the 10th inning is that everybody acts all Crazy, You know, Roman Quinn starts diving for the ball and it gets past mm-hmm. him and it's an inside the park home run. And that excitement and that, that unpredictability might well not happen in the first inning when these runs don't have the same game ending stakes attached to them.
0: Yeah, one of my reservations is just that I like a run to feel like an accomplishment. I I like it to feel like you got on base, which is hard to do, and then you advanced all the way around the bases, which is also difficult to do, and a lot of things had to come together for that to happen, so when you do finally push that run across the plate, it really feels like an achievement, and you look back at all the things that had to happen for that to happen, unless it was a home run, of course, but... It's not quite the same when you start halfway there, and really it's more than halfway there because a, a big part of the battle is just getting, getting on, on base on. Yeah. in the first place. Yeah. And so I I understand the, the tactical wrinkles, and it's all very exciting, and it's strange. And in contrast to the norm, it's pretty interesting, but I don't know that I would want it to be the norm even if you said well hey scoring runs is fun that's the goal after all so why not remove some of the impediments to accomplishing that goal and it'll just be rapid fire runs back and forth runs 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 but there is something to be said for the suspense and the build-up to those runs and mm-hmm. to really being made to feel like you earned it
1: yeah i wouldn't i am not i would not promote changing all innings to be like mm-hmm. the 10th inning. I think that uh, it's great for what it is. And I am generally pretty cautious about implementing uh, changes to things that seem like they're basically working. And I still yeah. feel like the the basic gameplay of Major League Baseball is still pretty entertaining and exciting to me. And the changes yeah. that I would make to make it more interesting and exciting would be less disruptive or, I don't know, uh, discontent. Discontin- Contin- inc- incongruous. There's <laughs> got to be a, an opposite of con- continuity <laughs> that is also an adjective, but it, it would be less of that. So, yeah. you know, one of the things that I think I keep on wanting to talk about this rule, I and I might sound kind of obsessed with talking about this rule. And I think that part of it is actually just because I was so against it. And I feel like my mind I worry that I'm not very open minded. I worry about everybody not being very open minded, but I worry about that, that I don't change my mind very often. And I think, well, how can I really trust that I am processing new information rationally and, and open mindedly if, if I almost never change my, my mind on anything or change my worldview on things? And it's really exciting for me that this is a thing that I, like can see my mind was changed on and that I'm not simply like finding evidence that suits my pre-existing opinion so it's Mm -hmm. it's like a I don't know people please be patient with me this is like a really (laughs) kind of fun and novel situation for me (laughs) where (laughs) I get to see uh, my my brain change in real time Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I think you're right, though, that the the model that we have that we've always had, at least when it comes to you have to actually get the runner on base before the runner advances his scores, that has worked well for 150 years or, or more at this point. And how many things can you actually say that about or how many entertainment forms can you say that about? And so, yeah, I'd be pretty careful about tampering with that kind of bedrock thing. Especially because if you do want more base runners, which I agree, probably a good thing to have more base runners than we do now, more defensive plays, all of that, there are things you can do to get the game back in that direction. Just give it a little nudge instead of a, a total overhaul, and it wouldn't be nearly so disruptive. So, all right. Well, I think we handled that discussion. Do you want to do a stat blast?
1: Yeah, sure. Sure.
0: Okay, this Stat Blast song cover, they keep coming in, and this one came in from Tyler Stafford, and as I said to Tyler, I can't believe it took this long for someone to do this version of the cover.
2: Somebody once sorted some data sets for me and teased out interesting tidbits They took time to analyze it the ERA minus and plus version of OPS Ben Lindbergh coming and the Jeffs stop coming Meg said let's go and she hit the ground running Did it make sense not to bring Sam back? The game's are long but the bats go crack so much to do, so much to see, so let's dive into some old retro sheets. If they don't know, Lucas might know, But Dan or someone with the show. Hey now, it's a stat blast, send an email, listen to them. Search for answers, for all of your questions. Did they choose the baseball? Only Rob Arthur really knows.
1: Whew. all right <laughs> okay
0: mm. thanks for stepping up tyler
1: <laughs> all right not your favorite smash mouth song though right like the official no. what is the official smash mouth song in this podcast wasn't it that one about i feel like we talked about the one where what's that the one from astro lounge uh, um, uh hang on i really like
0: the third track on astro lounge i just want to see Maybe that's a deep cut. <laughs> Stoned. Stoned oh, yeah. is, oh, the Stoned one that is I, a great one too. Yeah,
1: that's the one I remembered being maybe. Yeah. The... <laughs> yeah, that's
0: a great one. But that whole album is just great start to finish. <laughs> Problematic fave.
1: This comes from an email that Ryan sent a couple months ago, a few months ago, uh, just after the season had been delayed. And he said, I was thinking about how antsy people are going to be getting sitting at home with not much to do, naturally, including MLB's general managers. People can get up to some weird business when bored for very long. So how long is it going to take before the general managers start making trades just for something to do? Worded another way, how different would baseball be if all general managers acted like Jerry DePoto, constantly mm-hmm. making roster moves? And there was a pause on roster moves during the the, sh- the shutdown, right? The, so yeah. you couldn't make trades or uh, wave players or anything like that. Uh, so. The hypothetical where this was going to happen because we were, uh, you know, GMs had, had gotten bored of making bread is not applicable. But I had been wondering how different would baseball be if all general managers acted like Jerry DePoto. You haven't answered this yet, have you? No. All right. So I looked at just trades, and you'll see why. I looked at just trades to see how many more trades there would be if everybody... Behaved like Jerry Depoto. This
0: peak Depoto. I know Depoto just made a trade this week and sent Taiwan Walker to Toronto, but this is still a different Depoto from the peak Depoto when he was still sort of no, tearing down that team. We're,
1: just... we're gonna no. I'll address that. In fact, okay. so I looked at how many trades every team had made over the past three years. And for this is only if the GM was there for all three years. If Mm -hmm. the GM if the active GM had not been there for at least three years, then I prorated how long they had been there, over three years. And if a they had a new GM or a relatively new GM that either was hired uh, basically that was hired late late in twenty nineteen, I didn't count them at all. So Jerry DePoto in that time made sixty eight trades. And yeah, like you just noted uh, peak Jerry DiPoto is, is not necessarily his resting heart rate. He uh, had a, a flurry of trades over a period of time. And and then he, he does make, I think, more trades than, than most GMs other times, but he couldn't keep that pace up. And in mm-hmm. fact, over those he three ran out of players to trade. Yeah, well, he, maybe. Uh, so <laughs> he, in fact, did not make more trades than any other GM over the last three years. Eric Neander of the Rays made more mm. trades. So DePoto Good. made 68. Uh, Neander made 73. Farhan Zaidi, if you prorate, actually would be the champ because he made 25 in his first full season as the Giants president of baseball operations. Uh, but I'm going to consider that a little bit of, a, of an anomaly, new, new franchise and all that, new organization and all that. So the Rays at 73 is the peak. So 73 trades Over the course of three years is like 24 per year. And the average GM in that time made 13 per year. So 24 to 13, it's a big difference, particularly if it, you know, over the course of three years, it's, you know, it's uh, 34 more trades than the average. And relative to like the least active trade, like uh, Jeff British on the, the the Rockies, he only made 14 trades in that time. So the Rays made 59 more trades, almost 20 more per year than the Rockies did. So if in that time span, then we have 1095 trades. And uh, I just realized that each of these trades involves two teams. So we really have half that mm-hmm. many, but we're going to pretend that I didn't make that oversight and hope <laughs> that it doesn't affect any of the conclusions. So okay. <laughs> 1,095 trades over the course of three years. And remember, we're, the Rays are you know not quite double, but you know close to double. And so you would think, all right, well, if we made 1,095 in three years on average, and the Rays are about double, then how many trades are we going to get? 2,190 is two times, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. Or per year, like, you know, 800 instead of 400 or something like that. But, of course, that's not true. Of course, that's not how trades work. A trade, a trade is not a single GM acting on his own deciding to do something. A trade requires two willing GMs deciding to do something together. And so the more active one GM is, the more active... Another GM will be because he is more likely to find a willing partner, right? Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? It does. And so, if you had a situation where instead of one Jerry Depoto, you had say two Jerry Depotos, then every GM would probably make slightly more trades because they're more likely to bump into a Jerry Depoto, and the day True. that they decide that they want to make a trade and they pick up the phone to call a GM, more likely that the other GM is going to say yes. And so if you had a situation where there were three Jerry DePoto's or four Jerry DePoto's, then you would have this network effect, right? Like fax machines. Where you would just have, you know, find everywhere you look is a willing recipient to your offers. So what I did is I took each GM's rate of making trades I broke it down. It, it, I, took, I did a lot more steps than necessary. In fact, uh, <laughs> and I might have done it all wrong. And I'm going to double check this at some point, And I might come back in a later episode with a totally new stat blast. But I basically took the number of trades they make per week per team. So if you say you're Eric Neander, you make almost half a trade per week. And there are 29 other teams. And so you make, on average, about one and a half trades per team every 100 weeks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Let me see if I can rephrase that. Okay. (laughs) If you're Eric Neander, you have about a 1.6% chance of making a trade with any other GM, with a, a specific other GM per week. Okay. So so let's just imagine that once a week, every GM calls every other GM once. And they say, you want to make a trade? And it's binary. It's either yes or no. It's like, it's like swipe right. And if they both swipe right, then they make a trade. And if one swipes left, then no trade. All right. Mm-hmm. And they go through this process Once a week with each other. Everyone calls every other one once a week. And then you have a likelihood of two willing partners matching up, okay? Right. So using log five, the Mm -hmm. old Bill James method of figuring out the likelihood of one team beating another team, given their winning percentages, I applied Eric Neander's trade rate to every other GM's established trade rate to see how often each of these GMs would make a trade if all other 29 teams were the rays. And so for instance, Jeff British, instead of making 14 trades over three years, he would have made 26 trades over three years, which makes sense because now every GM is essentially twice as likely. To make a trade with him specifically mm-hmm. as they currently are but then if you cause all 30 teams basically if you give eric neander's rate to all 30 teams how often would eric neander make a trade and the answer to that is about four times as often as he does right now so the effect of making every team jerry depoto or farhan zaidi or eric neander would be to essentially increased the number of trades fourfold. There would have been, instead of a 1,000 trades over the last three years, there would have been about 4,000 trades over the last three years. And by my math, that means that we would get 26 trades a week in Major League Baseball.
0: <laughs> <laughs> instead of the the current like quarter of like, that? Roughly. Yeah, like six or seven. Yeah. Huh. Boy, that'd be a a lot of movement to keep track of. It would be. (laughs) I'm glad that's not what happens, I think.
1: Yeah, although I think, again, that each of those trades involves two teams. So have that. So I guess we Uh would have 13 trades per week instead of the current like four, Mm -hmm. Uh, three (laughs) or four.
0: Boy, you put a lot of work into that one.
1: I did, yeah. I put a lot of work into just refamiliarizing myself with the spreadsheet when it yeah. came time to do this stat blast. I,
0: I was seeing the, the Charlie Day bulletin board gif in my head <laughs> as you were going over that. My contributions are like emailing someone, hey, could you look this up for me? And <laughs> yours is like 20 tabs in a giant spreadsheet, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> you had but, the courage but, but to, but to also, tackle that question. That I also, yeah,
1: really important. <laughs> We've
0: established that baseball would probably not be better if uh everyone traded like Eric Neander. So the the question <laughs> is
1: whether uh Eric Neander and Sherry DePoto and Farhan Zaidi are trading because they have an like an ideal roster that they're moving toward, or if they're trading because they I mean, to, to oversimplify, they just like trading. And so they mm-hmm. then would, in this scenario, you quickly hit a peak, uh, not a peak, but like kind of a plateau where every GM had all the players they already wanted from everybody yeah. else. Like, could these high, high-frequency traders continue to have appetite for trade? And you see with Jerry Depoto, I, I feel like Jerry Depoto has both traded for and traded away a lot of the same players now, like a lot of like his second generation of trades were players that he had already traded for. So he didn't really slow down that much. It's not like he got a player like he, for instance, they just traded Dan Vogelbach. It's not like he got Dan Vogelbach and said like, finally, this is who I'm going to retire with. He kept on looking for, for ways to, to change his roster around. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I don't think that you would have a a slowdown after a certain amount of time, but it's certainly possible that, that you would.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, I guess uh, technically that was uh, was that just a cash deal? I don't know. Vogelback was uh, purchased or that's what it went down as okay. in the transaction log. Anyway, I have a much quicker and simpler <laughs> stackcast response here. This is from Step Blast, Step Blast Yes, Step Blast. This is uh, from Richard and also two other listeners. Three listeners emailed us, Richard Kyle and Patreon supporter Dan all wanted to know if this was unusual. This was what Richard said on Saturday, August 23rd. Six of the 14 games finished with a score of five to four or four to five. This seems unusual. What is the highest number of games that have finished with matching scores on the same day? Is six even that unlikely? Got an answer here from listener and research assistant Adam Ott. And yeah, it turns out it is pretty unlikely. This is the fourth time. That this has happened in, I guess, uh, the last century or so of baseball. Of course, there are more games played on the typical day now than earlier in baseball history, but it has never happened more than six times. There, there have never been more than six identical scores on the same day. So that's the max, and it was with 5-4 games this year. In 2018, May 19th, 2018, it was also five four games. There were six of them on a day with 17 games. There were 14 total games when it happened this past weekend. On October 2nd, 2012, there were six four to three games on a day with 15 games played. And on September 24th, 1972, there were six two to one games on a day with 14 games played. And for anyone who's wondering, five to four is not the most common outcome, but it is quite common. So the most common is three to two, then four to three, then two to one, and five to four is the fourth most common final score. And in fact, there was a a five to three. Score on the same day That there were six five to fours So we were one run away From that, that losing team scoring one run And getting us to seven identical Scores which would have broken the record but we didn't Quite get there and Because listener Mike asked us this week, and I figure this question might come up again, I figure we should mention that on episode 1356, we did answer the question of what the most games played in any single day was. That might come up again because we're going to get a bunch of doubleheaders here. So most games played on any single day was September 7th, 1970, when there were 21 major league games played, nine doubleheaders. Okay, so that is the answer to that question. Now, Anthony, Patreon supporter, says, I have an almost incredible fun fact that I think is still a solid fun fact and might be stat-blast worthy. I agree. On Sunday against the Cubs, Luis Robert struck out three times on nine pitches in his first three plate appearances, followed by a four-pitch strikeout in plate appearance number four. Has anyone ever gotten an immaculate golden sombrero in one game? So four strikeouts on 12 pitches. Robert was just one pitch away from that before uh, I think Jeremy Jeffress maybe threw him uh, a ball on O two 2 before he finally struck out. So... What Robert did, striking out three times on nine pitches in a single game, is uncommon, but not that uncommon. It has happened 299 times going back to 1988, the first season with pitch-by-pitch data. So that's about nine times per season, and it happens more often these days than it did at the beginning of that time. But the real question is, immaculate Golden Sombrero, how close was Robert to joining that exclusive club, and how exclusive is that club it is very exclusive. As you might imagine, it has happened three times, three times. Someone has had a game in that period where they have struck out four times on 12 pitches. For the first time, it happened on April 10th, 1988. Mike Pagliarulo struck out three times against Teddy Higuera and then one time against Dan Plesac. Then it happened twice in 2015. Those are the only other two times it has happened. So Justin Upton struck out four times, all swinging, three times against Jose Fernandez, one time against Mike Dunn on August 2nd, 2015, and Brett Laurie, all swinging again, Colby Lewis twice, Keone Kella once, and Neftali Flees once on April 7th, 2015. 11 of the 12 pitches he saw were breaking balls, actually. Grant Brisby blogged about it. And that's it. It's only happened three times on record. And that's not really surprising because, you know, you have to strike out four times in a game and then you have to do it on three pitches every time. And you would think that if you were close you would start taking some pitches, maybe. I don't know how much this would be on your mind that, hey, I don't want to have the immaculate golden sombrero. It's not like that's a well-known thing that everyone <laughs> knows, and you might not even notice that it had happened, but... You know, you would think like there are times when people take a pitch, like uh, they don't want someone to have a a minimum inning, as you like to call it. So if uh, a pitcher gets two outs on two pitches, they might just take a pitch just to prevent him from getting the minimum inning. That doesn't seem to happen, or at least if it happens, it doesn't work because you could just throw a called strike. (laughs) So it's kind of in the pitcher's control to some extent too.
1: Yeah, to a lot of, I mean, you're probably better off swinging at every pitch. If you if you're trying to avoid this then you would probably would decide to swing on every pitch.
0: Maybe if you wanted to get a foul or put the ball in play, all like you know, if you if you took every pitch, you'd you'd probably the odds are that he's going to throw a ball before you take three called strikes, right?
1: Um, yeah, I don't know. It depends how early in the process you begin strategizing against the immaculate <laughs> golden sombrero. Uh, because it, the odds are certainly, I would say, l- pretty extremely low that he, that the pitcher is going to throw 12 straight pitches in the strike zone. But mm-hmm. three straight in the strike zone, that happens constantly. That happens all yep. the time. Whereas if you swing at all of them, uh, like just if you just compare uh, the average hitter's contact rate, it's higher than the average pitcher's ball rate, Right. Like, yeah, the roughly half, let's say roughly half of pitches are not in the strike zone, but like 70 to 80% of swings produce contact. So only like 20 to 30% of swings produce no contact. And so you would probably want to, now of course that that's on pitches that the batter chooses to swing at. And if the batter swings at everything, then he's going to swing at some really dumb pitches. But yeah, I think that you would want to, I think that your goal in avoiding a golden sombrero is to either put a ball in play or to foul off a pitch with two strikes. And so I think that your best strategy for both of those would be to swing early and often.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And uh, I answered this question already. I'll, I'll just relate it to the audience. This is Sean, Patreon supporter, who asked, between the seven inning double headers that we've been talking about and the base runner starting on second base and extra innings, is the length of the average game appreciably lower than in previous years? If it is, does this have an impact on the amount of wins that are estimated for individual player contributions in War Models? And the answer is that the length of an average game is down from 8.94 innings last season to 8.69 innings this season. So, you know, 0.2 innings is the the difference, and that difference might increase a little bit as we get more and more seven-inning doubleheaders here down the stretch, but... You would not really notice the impact on war, at least, you know, on top of the enormous impact of having a 60 game season instead of a 162 game season. I don't think you're going to notice the extra 0.2 or 0.3 or whatever fewer innings per game. So I think that is maybe more relevant when it comes to like qualifying, right? Like uh, 3.1 plate appearances per game is qualifying and and still is, I guess, for, for the batting title. But uh, you might have a harder time getting that number of plate appearances because games are a little bit shorter now.
1: You know, part of that too would, I don't know how much it would affect it, but part of the reason that it's as high as it is, is I assume that without a home field advantage, the home team is batting in a lot more bottom of the ninths. Oh, yeah. Back and be so you have more games that go nine instead of 8.5 this year. Yeah. So if that were to disappear, that would be another thing where it would uh, probably it would drop a little bit more. But yeah, it's it's not it's not surprise. It's not some huge loss mm-hmm. or huge drop. I'm looking now and, and I'm trying to find what the lowest ever was. So in the pre 1900s. This was presumably because of darkness, and also because mm. nobody was really watching the games, and so who cared <laughs> about mm-hmm. resuming them if it rained? For instance, they were eight point six to eight point seven pretty reliably. Mm-hmm. However, since nineteen hundred, the so we're at eight point seven three innings per game right now. Yes, since uh, I'm just going to skip, I'm going to say since lights became in use, we have eight point eight six. Probably maybe 8.84 was the shortest. So in the late 30s and and in the mid 40s, you'd have it be in the high Mm 8.8s, which I guess probably is just that they resumed fewer games. Yeah, could right. be. When
0: did they uh, stop playing Bottom of the Ninth? <laughs> you, oh, that was like very, very, was... very early. Extremely okay. early,
1: like the 1870s or something like that. Okay. Maybe earlier. But, early but early.
0: after the, the foundation of the National League, or was it even before that, do you think? Were there major league games played during the period when they just played every Bottom of the Ninth, even if they didn't have to? I don't
1: know. Hmm. I don't
0: know. Well, if you find out, let me know.
1: I mean, I could go find out. You, wanna, <laughs> you want me to go find out? Yeah. All right, hang on a second. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. I have not read this whole thing, so it might not actually answer it, but I'm going to read where this comes from. This is uh, from Peter Morris's great book, A Game of Inches, and this is actually for the entry for walk-off hits. Once it was established that a game was to last nine innings, the requirement was taken literally. If the club batting last was ahead after eight and a half innings, it wouldn't have occurred to early players not to complete the game. After all, a baseball match was a ceremony rather than a competition, and for the losers to walk off the field would be the ultimate act of poor sportsmanship. (laughs) This custom of completing the game persisted throughout the increasingly competitive 1870s, while many other gentlemanly traditions died out. Before the 1874 season, a proposal was made to end play after eight and a half innings if the outcome was decided, but the idea was, quote, discussed somewhat unfavorably, end quote, and voted down.
0: <laughs> People probably said, if you want to end after eight and a half, why don't
1: we just end <laughs> after, after seven <laughs> and, and a half?" Inning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nor was it simply a case of going through the motions in the bottom of the ninth. This is my favorite part, in fact. This is, I, I think about this a lot. Nor was it simply a case of going through the motions in the bottom of the ninth. In many cases, a side that had already won piled up many additional (laughs) runs against demoralized opponents. (laughs) In the deciding match of a tournament in Blissfield, Michigan, held August 22nd and 23rd, 1879, the nine spots of Sturgis led the Adrian Club 5-4 in the bottom of the ninth. But a two-run single won the game in the tournament for Adrian. The nine spots glumly walked off the field, and the umpire ruled the game a 9-0 forfeit, which not everybody knows this, but a forfeit has always been recorded as 9-0, one run for every inning, regardless of what the actual score is. The newspapers criticized the club for the breach of etiquette. More important, their action in walking off the field helped to pave the way for the walk-off hit. This and similar incidents made it obvious that a custom once designed to promote good sportsmanship was instead creating ill will. Mm. The rule was finally changed that offseason so that, quote, if the side at bat in the ninth innings secures the winning run, the game is to be called without putting out three men as heretofore. (laughs) Stevens Point Journal, December 13th, 1879. The first sudden death victory in Major League history took place on opening day of the National League's 1880 season. And with the visiting team still generally batting last, the road team was victorious. In Cincinnati, Chicago rallied with two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning to defeat their hosts 4-3. to three. The Chicago Tribune triumphantly reported that, quote, it was nobody's victory till that last moment. The dramatic circumstances surrounding the National League's first walk-off home run are described, oh, man, are described in the entry rotations. I I took this, like, dramatic, like, what's the last sentence? We're going to sum it up. I took a dramatic tone, and then it was just go elsewhere for more. (laughs) And I didn't realize it until halfway through the sentence. So that's the answer. 1879 was the last year that that was a rule. Okay,
0: so they played four seasons of National League Baseball (laughs) playing the bottom of the ninth. Yeah, bless them. All right. All right, that will do it. Thanks, as always, for listening. By the way, as you may have seen, shades of a previous email episode discussion. This week, Mike Trout said he has a fear of flying. He said if there is a hurricane in Houston, he might not fly home with the team. I do not like turbulence, he said. You can ask any of my teammates. I already told Upton if that happens, we're driving six hours west and then flying. So Mike Trout likes weather and he likes airplane emojis. He does not like when real airplanes go through real weather. Anyway, on episode 1187, Jeff and I answered the question, how much value would Mike Trout lose if he was not allowed to fly on a plane, which fortunately is not actually the case here, but you can check out that episode for our answer. Also wanted to mention friend of the show and sometimes stat blast assistant Dan Hirsch, who works for Baseball Reference, has transferred his great game changer tool from the Baseball Gauge, his site, to Baseball Reference. So if you use MLB TV on a computer and you want to set it up so that it will automatically switch from game to game based on your preset criteria, go check that out. I will link to that and everything else we discussed this episode on our show page as always always you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks jonathan knapp dylan saman sean nodes alexander bertland and Carter Fornash. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com group Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. That's it for this week, so we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week when most likely we will recap the trade deadline and see if Sam's stat blast came true.